Well, over the last several weeks, we've been working through the doctrine of God and thinking about uh, who God is, um, and, and what, what we've wanted to try to do is, is really quite significant and important, um, because whenever you stop and consider who God is, you're, you're beginning to step into territory that is, is not fully comprehensible. And if God was fully comprehensible, and if we had an image of him that was fully comprehensible, we probably want to begin rethinking who we have as our image, because if my mind can create him, there's, there's problems there. But the word reveals a, a God who, in many ways, we can understand, but in many ways, is incomprehensible. And for us, as his believers, as his disciples, understanding who God is, is directly attached to what we understand the mission that God has given us is. And we have tried to bring clarity in regards to this mission over the last several months, and we understand the mission that the Lord has given every local church, but certainly ours, is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. So to understand who he is matters greatly when we begin to think through how are we going to glorify him? In what ways do we glorify him? What do we glorify him for? Well, understanding who God is is significant in that. But then if you continue thinking through just the very idea of what a disciple is, that's just a fancy word that means follower. Would it not be important for us to understand who this God is if we are to follow him and those who are making disciples, making other followers? And so there's incredible implications for this as we've stepped into this. This has not just been five, six, seven weeks of theology. I'm not just trying to download for you what I got in seminary. We're going to try to actually walk you through who the scriptures say God is or better yet, who God says he is through the scriptures that he authored. And in week one, we stepped in and, and tried to get our minds wrapped around this question of who is God? Who is God? And God is one being in three persons. We sing about it, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. If we try to get our minds wrapped around that, we're going to lose our sanity. But if we deny it, we're going to lose our souls. Because this is who God has revealed himself to be from really beginning to end in the scriptures. Three in one. But then we also have to consider what is God like? We may be able to maybe get our minds around who he is. But what is he like? And is there a different God in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament? And gave you 25 character attributes of God. That morning we just picked on really two of them. Trying to understand God's wrath towards sin and sinners and his love for sinners and how those correspond to one another, how they are able to reconcile. And one of the best ways that I think we have to be able to reconcile what we see in the Old Testament and what we read about in the New Testament is is bound up in this phrase, a window of mercy. And that God is not a different God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But what we find ourselves in the midst of right now is a window of mercy because the judgment is coming one day. Christ is returning as the righteous and just judge. And those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ 
will fall to his righteous judgment. But right now there stands open a window of mercy where the impending judgment has been announced and the plea for men to place their faith and trust in Christ and for women to place their faith and trust in Christ has gone out and as believers we have been commanded to take that message out. And it's actually the same exact pattern that we see in the Old Testament before the Lord does level a city. Or we see in the case of Nineveh when that city did repent, the Lord relented. Faith, salvation was found. Well, last week and the week before, Pastor Danny walked us through the Son and His deity and His humanity and that Christ was fully God and fully man. That he did not cease to be God when he came to earth, but he became God in human flesh and was 100% God and 100% man. And I would submit to you that if we lose either one of those things, we lose salvation. That that understanding of who Jesus Christ is, his deity and his humanity is directly in line and a part of our understanding of his work on the cross. And we have to have both because it was actually the perfect, obedient life that Christ lived that has been credited to our account. So for him to be fully man and live a perfect, sinless life and then take on sin as God, as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin, he as a perfect, sinless human being is now able to credit his sinlessness to us. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you deny either one of those aspects of the full deity or the full humanity of Jesus, you have in every way denied the salvation that is found in Christ alone. And this morning, we are going to direct our attention to the Holy Spirit. And let's just be honest, this is probably the one that we're the most uncomfortable with. It's the one that in many ways is the most subjective. When we can objectively go to the Scriptures, we can point to a verse, we can point to something that Christ has done, and objectively say, He did it. But the very promise of the Spirit is that the Spirit would continually work. And that has introduced therein into the life of the church incredible opportunities for subjectivity. And how do I know that your interpretation of something the Spirit maybe quote-unquote told you to do lines up with my understanding of what the Spirit may or may not tell you to do? There's a lot of subjectivity in regards to this, there's a lot of objectivity as well, and we'll think through those things over the next couple weeks, but there's a lot of subjectivity. And if we're honest, we probably are all vaguely familiar or very familiar with other churches or areas of ministry uh, that have understandings of the Spirit that would lead them to do things that we might stand back and go, I don't get that. I was reading this past week that uh, somebody who was a Lowe's employee at, um, I forget where the Lowe's was, was bitten by a snake. And the snake was in a tree, and he went to like buy the tree, and the copperhead got him. And, and so somebody made a comment on that, that there was only five deaths 
as a result of snake bites in the United States this past year. One of them was actually a pastor who thought handling poisonous deadly snakes was a good idea and he died. Now the, the conclusions that that man would have been led to to handle these poisonous deadly snakes uh, would have been a result of an understanding of the Holy Spirit that I just don't agree with. And none of these boxes behind me have rattlers in them. Okay? We're not going there this morning. Uh, but there's a lot of subjectivity in that. And it's actually been joked in our fellowship, perhaps to our shame. It, it, not perhaps, to our shame. It's been joked in our fellowship that our Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a, a, just as a, as, a, as a people, as a grace brethren people, we're, we're really prone to intellect. We're, we're prone. We've got a school. We've got books that seminary professors have authored. We like and we, we celebrate thinking and theology and all of those things. And, and yet in, in our history, it has indeed been joked and perhaps by way of chiding that we have in many ways dismissed the Holy Spirit and we've done so because we're not all the time comfortable with some of the things that he's claimed to lead people towards. And perhaps we're not always comfortable with the subjectivity there. And so we're going to try to step in to that a little bit. We may even have a level of comfort or discomfort in regards to the Holy Spirit just based on your personality type. I would submit to you that if you're a thinker, if you're part of that Myers-Briggs personality profile, you are going to be far more discomforted by the idea of some subjectivity in, in the work of the Spirit. And if you're a feeler, you're probably going to be far more comfortable with some of those things. And so just some of the ways that God has wired us is going to sway you one direction or another to a certain degree. And so uh, what I want to give you as we begin, before we begin stepping into um, just thinking about the deity of the Spirit, um, is, is three pastoral prayers. And they're on the screen for you. I'll be quite frank with you. This is the application. We're going to return to this. So if you just want to jot this down and walk out like you've got it for the morning, all right, you can have, go down and buy some barbecue and, and get a jump start on that. Uh, but what we want to try and accomplish is that collectively and individually, we would invite the Spirit to come and work in and through us. That we'd actually ask and desire and want God's Spirit to come and lead us. And we're going to think through the promise of the Spirit this morning. And the promise of the Spirit was actually the fulfillment that He would come and work. And he would work in all believers, regardless of race, gender, societal rank. So I pray that we would grow individually and collectively to want this. To want him to come and work. And number two, that we would submit to the Spirit's leading and direction as distinctly revealed in the Bible. There are some things that we can understand that are correct and incorrect in regards to the work of the Spirit. When we think even about what God's will is and what we're to do as believers, there is distinct revelation that we have been given. And nothing the Spirit would ever lead you to do 
is going to contradict this. This is what we can objectively measure everything that's subjective against. And so we have before us God's word that we have been called to submit to. The Spirit's the author of God's word. He has distinctly revealed what he wants us to do. And I pray that we'd be willing to submit to that. But as well, that we would submit to his promptings that do not disagree with the Bible. And I'll just tell you a little bit of how this works out for me, or at least how it's worked out in the past for me. Um, there's been a few times, maybe two or three, when I've been running, and, and I have just had an overwhelming feeling that I needed to talk to somebody who I just passed while running and ask them if they know the Lord. Now what happens in that moment is I just keep on running. And I just keep on going, and now I'm arguing with myself, and I'm arguing with the Lord. Like, do you really want me to go ask that question of that person? Do you, and, and, and now it's like, well, now I'm like 75 yards away. It's going to be a little awkward. And, 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 and finally, it's like, all right, it's just going to be a terrible run the rest of the time if I'm just arguing with myself about whether or not I should do this. So then I turn around, but now I'm chasing the person down because I've run past them. And now, now we've got a criminal moment here where they're not sure whether or not I'm going to go and mug them or what is going on. And, and it, one up, when I was in a park in Indiana and I ran past and I, I think I had the dog with me and we were running and got and picked. So I turned around and the guy was eating his lunch in his work van. And, and I went up to him and I'm out of breath. And I'm like, this is going to be really weird. But I just felt like God wanted me to come and ask you, do you know who Jesus Christ is? He looks at me and he goes, yeah. All right, man. Have a great day. And like just, just kept on running. And just like, all right, you know what? Okay. Like, I don't know why the Lord told me to do that, but he did. And all right. And, and the, the conviction of doing that left in the presence then in the response to the obedience to the prompting of the Spirit. And, and I, don't, I don't think you're, you're ever going to find that the Spirit's in disagreement with the Word if you're ever prompted to share the gospel with somebody. But are you willing to do that? Are you willing, if you're standing in the line at McDonald's or another restaurant, or are you willing, if, if prompted by the Spirit, to, to go, you know, I'm going to pay for that person's order and when they ask, I'm just going to tell them, I don't know why I did it. I just felt like God wanted me to. Are, are you willing to do that? Those are the kind of promptings of the Spirit that, that in many ways I think we should ask for. We should plead with the Lord to lead us in. And when He does, if they do not disagree with Scripture, we obey and we follow. I just actually saw this morning on Facebook uh, that somebody posted a picture of their receipt from a restaurant. It was one of the Chinese buffets here in town uh, that somebody else paid for their meal. And, and this person had no idea who it was, posted the picture, posted the little note that they were written, and was so overwhelmed that their meal had been paid for. And it was just this simple note that said, you know, I, I've got a child with special needs, and we just wanted to bless you. You know, God bless you. And, and there's just... The response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You have no idea what God's going to do in the hearts and the lives of 
those whom you're prompted to share those things with? Are you willing to submit in those ways? Thirdly, that we would learn to live according to the Spirit and put to death sin by the power of the Spirit. See, we're told in the Scriptures that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can put to death sin by the power of the Spirit. Are you willing to do that? Or are you just willing to concede that, you know what? This area of my life, you know, this immorality or, or this sinful behavior, you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I'm going to just kind of, well, I'm just going to kind of bide my time and things will get straightened out later. Or are, you, are you willing to put to death by the power of the Spirit that sin? The promise of the Spirit is that God enables us to do that. Are you willing to do it? And so that's where we're going. We want to turn our attention on the deity of the Spirit. And we're going to look briefly into the Old Testament to just think of how God's Spirit is said to be at work. And then we're going to think through a little bit more uh, in regards to the New Testament and what the New Testament says about the promise of the Spirit. And so in Genesis 1, in the very beginning, we see the Spirit is there. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here you have the Spirit of God being present before God said, let there be light. You have David recounting in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your Spirit. You may remember one of the character attributes of God that we looked at was his omnipresence, his all presence, that there is no place you can go to not be in the presence of the Lord. And here David ascribes that attribute to the Holy Spirit. That is not just an attribute that the Father would possess. That is an attribute that the Trinity possesses. And here the Spirit is distinctly said to possess it. But let's think just for a minute about what this looks like. Because this, I think, is significant and important. This idea of not being able to leave the presence of God is not that God is peanut butter having been spread throughout the cosmos in and around everything. That's actually a new age idea that there's a little bit of God in that tree, and so I'm going to go commune with that tree, and there's a little bit of God in that frog, and I'm going to go commune with that frog. But the idea of not being able to flee the presence of God is that all things are before him at all times, not that he has been spread out through all things at all times. So the little kid's song that we grew up singing, if you grew up in church, he's got the whole world, what? In his hands. Okay, it's not just the world, it's the Milky Way galaxy, it would be the other 10,000 galaxies that NASA has begun to discover and find. He's got all of those, and the idea is God stands so far above and transcendent beyond those things as creator that everything that he has made is before him at all times. Not that he is some type of cosmic goo that has been just slimed over everything. There's an important distinction there because we don't go and worship trees to go and commune with God. We are before God at all 
times. Well, in regards to the promise of the Spirit and what the Old Testament has to say, Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27, is a promise that God is making to His people. In context, it's the people of Israel, and they are in captivity in Babylon, and God is promising to restore them in tremendous ways, but the promises that He makes to them are a part of the new covenant that Danny walked us through just briefly last week, that you and I as people of God also share in. And Ezekiel says this, quoting from the Lord, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. We're actually going to see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 in beginning stages. I will sprinkle clean water on you. That's a significant phrase. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey all of my rules. It's the promise that the Holy Spirit would come and come in a way that He had not come before. The Holy Spirit's very active in the Old Testament. We are told that that David spoke Scripture by the Holy Spirit. We're told that that Saul and David were filled with the Holy Spirit for for certain works and and, and acts and feats in, in obedience to the Lord. You see the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He doesn't just show up when you get to the New, but there is something distinct about his activity and about his very presence that is different when you get to the new as opposed to the old and it's that the spirit is going to dwell in God's people and God promised just that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules See, as believers, the promise for us in responding and obeying to God is not that we find some type of white-knuckle courage and conviction in and of ourselves to obey. It's that we yield to the Spirit who God has put within us because He causes us to walk in His statues. Now, I said earlier, there was a phrase, I will sprinkle you with clean water, that is an important one, in as as well, I will put my spirit within you. Let's just fast forward real briefly to the New Testament. John 3, verse 5, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see the parallels in the language there? In the, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, you have the Lord sprinkling clean with water, cleansing from uncleanliness. We're, we're not talking about the baptism waters here. That's actually a picture of the act that God does. But Jesus himself to Nicodemus says, Unless one's born again of water and of the Spirit, the water there being the water that the Lord would sprinkle us with to cleanse us from unrighteousness, Paul in Titus 3.5 says something very similar as well. He saved us. That is, God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, you see 
in theological language, Paul describing what was prophesied back in Ezekiel chapter 36, that there would be a washing and there would be come the presence of the Spirit, which is the exact same thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And so the Spirit has been promised to come, and come in a special way. And Jesus himself throughout his life spoke about the Spirit to his disciples. John the Baptist, as he was baptizing people, spoke very, very pointedly about Christ and what Christ would do in regards to the Spirit. And John the Baptist said this in John 1.29, go ahead Mike, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man that ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend on heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, and this is the significant part as we see the continuation of the promise of the Spirit, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. There's actually Old Testament prophecies in regards to the Spirit coming and enabling Jesus for work and ministry. In Isaiah, I believe, chapter 11, we're told that Jesus will do everything He does through the power of the Holy Spirit. That was recorded as Christ came out of the waters when He was baptized, where the Spirit descended like a dove. The Father spoke from heaven. The Son emerges out of the water. And John tells us the Spirit descended and remained. And the work of Christ was to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus promises his disciples in the upper room discourse. It's the very last night of his ministry with the disciples before he's arrested and betrayed and taken to Calvary. If you love me and keep my commands, I, and I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, you have this promise reiterated that the Spirit would come. And he would come and dwell in them. And we see that event take place in the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is the book of the Bible that has the most references to the Holy Spirit in it. 55 references in the book of Acts to the Spirit. You can see if you were to categorize those references and, and, and put them into some ways to try to identify them, there they are on the screen. You've got a few references to Jesus' ministry being done through the Spirit, that the Spirit actually empowered Christ for ministry. You see references to the baptism and receiving of the Spirit. 
you see the Spirit filling and empowering the disciples for ministry. There's Old Testament prophecies that are quoted and promises that are quoted regarding the Spirit. And then you see the Spirit acting as God. You see the Spirit being attributed to the authorship of Scripture. You see the Spirit telling men like Philip in Acts chapter 8, go over there and speak to that man. Philip goes, the man places his faith and trust in Christ, the man gets baptized, and all of a sudden the Spirit just whisks Philip away and he's nowhere to be found. You see the Spirit acting as God. Well, what you have in Acts chapter 1, in beginning of verse 4, is what we see in the initial stages of this fulfillment that the Spirit would come and would dwell within God's people. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's the same promise that John made in John chapter 1 in regards to the work of Christ. Christ himself is making that, referencing that the Father has promised the Spirit to come. Verse 6, so when they had come together, this is his disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice again, the disciples, they, they really hadn't gotten it from the upper room some 50 days before. Jesus says, the Spirit's going to come. They gather together, and He's staying with them, and He orders them not to depart. And He tells them, look, the promise of the Spirit's going to come. But then they, they gather together again. They're asking Him, is this when you're going to come and overthrow Rome? Is this when you're going to come and make our nation great again? And he, Jesus is saying, you guys got it, this thing backwards. It's not for you to know when those things are to occur. You're actually to go and be witnesses, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and empower you for that. And it's that very thing that we see happening in the beginning pages and verses of Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and tongues like fire descend on them, and a sound like a mighty rushing wind can be heard in that room. And the 120 that had gathered and were waiting because of the instruction of Jesus were anointed and filled and received the Holy Spirit in a way that they had never done before, and it allowed them to minister to those that had pilgrimaged to Jerusalem in partial fulfillment of what we read from Ezekiel 36, where the Lord would gather His people from all the nations. You see a a vast majority of the nations gathered together at Pentecost, all hearing the gospel proclaimed in their native tongue. They wonder, have these Galileans just been drinking? And Peter stands up and says, no, this is exactly what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2 and he quotes for them another Old Testament prophecy in regards to what the Spirit would do. We see throughout the Old Testament that the Spirit is God and the Spirit has been promised for and to God's people that He would dwell with them. 
I also want us to just briefly this morning consider the personhood of the Spirit because He is not just a force. He is a person and there are some distinct ways that we can understand His personhood from the Scripture and we'll just go through some of these quickly. You can write down just the references would be most helpful I believe. But as a person He dwells or indwells believers and this happens at the moment of salvation. When you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, the Spirit took residence inside of you, inside of the immaterial part of you, and you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is from God. The Spirit in dwells. Secondly, the Spirit is knowable. We've already looked at this reference once, but Jesus says, and look at the very tail end, you know Him. As a person, the Spirit can be known. The Spirit is knowable. The Spirit can be lied to. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, and this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where the, all, all, the, all the church members were selling off everything that they owned personally and laying those proceeds at the feet of the disciples and the apostles for them to distribute those things to everyone so that there was no one without need. And Ananias and Sapphira contrived this scheme to fake and trick the assembly into thinking they had done the same thing. And Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit can be lied to, but also notice at the very end of chapter, verse 4, what Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. I would submit to you that that gives us good reason to think the Holy Spirit can be sinned against. As a person, he can be sinned against, and in doing so, he can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He has emotions. In Isaiah 63, verses 7 and 10, where we read that the Israelites rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we're told to not grieve the Spirit. The Spirit has emotions. The Spirit grieves, but the Spirit also loves Paul says in Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. You have another verse there that references all three members of the Trinity. The Spirit has emotions. Lastly, the Spirit has intellect and can communicate. The Spirit has intellect and can communicate. We see that the Spirit thinks. We'll look at this a little bit more in detail next week. But we're told that the Spirit knows the mind of God. The Spirit thinks. There's comprehension. The Spirit speaks. David himself in 2 Samuel says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. To whatever degree David understood, and I'm not sure I understand the full degree that he had understanding, but David understood that some of what he wrote was inspired by the Spirit. We would look at his contribution to the Psalms and other places of Scripture and say, 
that's absolutely empowered and enabled and authored by the Spirit. But you have the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 4 quoting places that David wrote in the Old Testament and attributing the authorship to the Spirit. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 quotes the Old Testament and again attributes the authorship to the Spirit. Spirit has intellect and can communicate. And so what do we do with this? I told you the pastoral prayers earlier that first we'd collectively and individually invite the Spirit to come and work in us and through us. That we would want that. That we'd want that as a church. That we'd want that as individuals. That we'd want that for our families. And he was promised to come. And that, that desire, that first prayer, that first desire, is that we would just acknowledge the very things the Lord said the Spirit was going to come and do. The promises that the Lord gave us. Secondly, that we would submit to the Spirit's leading and direction as distinctly revealed in the Bible. There's some places in the Bible that are just clear. It does not take a rocket scientist to understand some of the things that have been distinctly revealed in the Scriptures. Are you willing to submit to them? But then as it gets into the promptings, and, and, I, and I think more of the subjective role and work of the Spirit. Are we willing to submit to those where they do not disagree with the Bible? I had a really interesting Tuesday this past week. I got a phone call Tuesday morning from a gentleman that needed to speak to a pastor. It's not uncommon that I get those phone calls, but the scenario that, that led to him calling was unique. And it ends up being that this man is, is 50 years old. Up until a year ago, for the last 30 years of his life, he was a practicing homosexual male in the West Hollywood district of Los Angeles. He is in the very last stage of a battle with AIDS, and he is dying. And he made a trip from West Hollywood to Albany, New York, to try to reconcile with his family. His family was openly accepting of him as a gay man, and was openly rejecting of him as a Christian man. And he got kicked out of his family's house. He got kicked out of his mother's house. And decided that the best course of option was for him to just begin hitchhiking his way back to California. Well, he ended up in the hospital. Ended up that he got a ride from somewhere in the New York area to Waynesboro. He attends a Grace Brethren Church in California found us on the internet or the yellow pages, whatever, calls, hey, I need some help. So I engaged and we were able to help him and take him down and get him a, a night stay in a hotel and uh, was able to just get him a ride down to Hagerstown where he'd be able to make his train connection. The amazing part of this man's story, and there's several amazing parts, but one of the amazing parts of this man's story is how he came to know the Lord. There was a 17-year-old boy who was also a part of a Grace Brethren Church in the San Diego area who was also dying of AIDS, not because of choices that he made, but because of a medical procedure that went wrong and a blood transfusion that gave him the virus. That 17-year-old boy was in Starbucks one day, I think about a year ago, 
saw this man who was also clearly dying of AIDS. You could, you could not mistake the fact that this man was a sick, sick man. This 17-year-old boy went and it just began having a conversation with this man. And they talked for hours. And this man found out, Wayne found out that this boy, this teenager, was a believer. And he said, he never pushed it on me, but it was very clear that he loved the Lord. And it just made me want to ask more questions. He never came out and condemned me, but it was clear that he loved the Lord. And it just made me want to ask more questions. And so Wayne did. And Wayne began going to church with him. And Wayne accepted Christ as his personal Savior. And Wayne gave up the lifestyle that he had lived for the better part of 30 plus years in the West Hollywood area that has yet chosen to stay in that area to share the gospel with people that he knows, his neighbors, that are just as lost as he was. Folks, I tell you, submitting to the prompting of the Spirit in Starbucks, that's what we're talking about. That does not disagree with the Bible. One bit. I pray that we'd be desirous. That the Spirit would come and work and when He prompts that we would follow. Would there not be more Waynes who get saved and rescued because we would be willing to look like fools and chase somebody down as you're running and asking, do you know the Lord? But thirdly, that we'd be willing to live according to the Spirit and put sin to death. I would submit to you that if you're not willing to do number three, number one and two is going to make no sense for you. If you're not desirous and willing to, to follow the Lord in the things that he has very clearly revealed in his word, you're not going to even have a desire for the Spirit to work in you because the Spirit's going to come and work and bring conviction. And if you don't want to follow the Lord, you're not going to want the conviction. And you're certainly not going to respond to the promptings of the Spirit. You certainly have, have patterned yourself to not want to respond to the distinct revelation of the Spirit. If you're not serious about number three, you're not even going to be willing to consider number one and two. I pray that we'd be desirous to learn to live according to the Spirit. Put to deed, put to death what the Scriptures say are the, are the deeds of the flesh or sin. So to that end, let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise of the Spirit that you gave us and for his coming. God, we thank you that, that you have, have placed your Spirit inside of us to lead us, to guide us, to cause us to obey your word. And God, I pray that you would help us to see, give us the faith we need to see, give us the eyes that we need to see, that the, the very conviction that the Spirit may bring in regards to where we're not living in conformity with your word is actually your grace. 
It's your grace inviting us to come and, 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 and throw ourselves at your mercy and your compassion and, and your love. That you're, you're slow to anger and you're rich in mercy and you're steadfast in love and you're faithful. And that we would be willing to, to draw near and desire to be holy. That we'd be what, what, what might be best pictured as a sanctuary. So God, we, we need you to come and work. And we pray and invite you to do so even now as we sing and respond. In Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.